Well, I mentioned children's church. Um, if, if you have young kids in church or you have had young kids in church, um, you know that we, we make stuff like this, that, that crafts uh, are an integral part of the growing up in church experience. Um, you know, most weeks in my family having three kids, uh, we come home from church with two to three crafts uh, between Sunday school and children's church and the kids and maybe three or four activity pages. Uh, so, so we do a lot of this stuff. It actually kind of causes some problems at home, you might be surprised to know, uh, because, you know, what do you do with all of this? Uh, they're always precious. They're always the most magnificent thing that's ever been created. Uh, and yet, if you, if you maintain this pace for uh, you know, 52 weeks out of the year, over the course of five years, you, you need a new house uh, just to store all of the craft supplies and things that have been uh, brought home from church. Uh, so every once in a while, we just have to purge all the paper plates and pipe cleaners and glitter creations uh, so that we can live. Uh, but wh- why do we do that? Okay, that, that does, it does cause some problems um, in terms of you know, having all this stuff around the house. It takes time and energy to make these things. Why do we do that uh, with the kids? Uh, why, why would we make that stuff where we have to um, you know, create things out of uh, plastic cups and, and paper mache? I don't, I don't know if we've ever done paper mache. That's pretty involved. But we, we make all these. Why do we do that? Why do we take the time? Uh, I mean, part of it is but we realize that for kids, um, it helps them to learn. Uh, the more they're involved, the more they learn. So, so they could hear a story, and if they just sit there and hear a story, first of all, good luck trying to just tell a kid a story and then just sit there. But they can hear a story, they might learn something. Uh, they could hear a story, and if they, if they do something... You know, and if they do something that's related to the story, then they can take that thing home and they can look at it uh, throughout the week. It reinforces the lessons that have been learned. Okay? So it becomes an object lesson. That, that the thing we have that we've made in itself, as you look at it, it reminds you of the story, it tells you the story, and it reinforces what you've learned. Okay? Now, now my point in saying that, I'm not just up here trying to defend our philosophy of children's ministry. Uh, here, here's the reason why we should do crafts. Uh, actually, I think that, that we should recognize that we have similar needs. Okay? Maybe we should do some crafts up here. You know, God knows us. God knows the way we're made because, after all, he is the one who made us. Uh, and, and he knows that, that all of us, like children, uh, we do better when, beyond just hearing something, we can also see that thing. We can also make something with it. We can use our hands. We can live in something. And so when God wants us to learn something, what you'll see is you look in the, tor- in, the, in the course of Scripture, when he wants people to learn something, he doesn't just tell them something. He doesn't just give a, uh, a verbal explanation of things. Uh, he often assigns crafts. Uh, God creates, throughout Scripture, these object lessons these physical things that he wants people to make and to do that teach valuable lessons in and of themselves. It's not just for preschoolers. And so what I want to do today as we continue our series in the book of Hebrews is I want to show you uh, that there's a couple object lessons, two big ones that God gave in the past. Uh, And it's kind of weird talking about object lessons, uh, but I couldn't make them up here for you this morning, so I'll do my best to paint a picture. Uh, We're going to talk about these two object lessons, and then, after we finish that, we're going to actually do an object lesson. And that's what we've got behind us in in the baptism uh, to finish up today. Uh, But first, I want to point to you, uh, Hebrews chapter 8, and look at some of these object lessons together. Now, for those of you who are are visiting us, we're in the middle of a series going through the book of Hebrews. 
Uh, and this book was written by a, a pastor to a congregation of people, uh, and they were in a, in a crisis. These were folks who were wondering, is it even worth it to follow Jesus? So they started out as Christians, they began following him, and then different pressure had happened. They were kind of scared of persecution, or uh, you know, there's other things that they thought, well, maybe I should go uh, do this other thing, and God says, I can't do it, but I really want to. And, and so they're struggling, they're wondering, is it worth it to follow Jesus? And the main way that the author of this book tries to tell people it's worth it to follow Jesus is by showing them how awesome Jesus really is. He's saying, why would you want to walk away from this? He's so good. He's so wonderful. The benefits he gives you are so rich and wonderful. There's no reason to walk away. And the focus of our passage today, as we look in Hebrews chapter 8, is that Jesus is so incredible because he accomplishes what these old object lessons only foreshadowed. So we're going to jump around a little bit. We're going to read Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 5, and then I'll jump over to chapter 9 and read the first 14 verses there, because these kind of go together. So if you've got a Bible, uh, you can follow along with me as I read out loud. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Right, jump to chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of Reformation. But, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's the word of the Lord for this morning. Now, what I want to show you as we walk through this is that there's a couple object lessons uh, built in to this passage. So first, as you look in chapter 8, you see God uses object lessons. Just look at verses 1 and 2. Okay, Chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. 
He says, now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So he's saying Jesus is now in heaven. That's where he is. He's the true high priest. He's serving in God's presence at his right hand right now. Okay, contrast that, though, with the other priests, the old priests, in verses 4 and 5. If he were on earth, it says he wouldn't be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve at a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Right? So, so what he's saying here is that there's these priests, these Old Testament priests, folks who served in the sanctuary, and they, they would do their business, and they were uh, working at this earthly tabernacle. They're, they're, they're doing it. And, and, and they thought, at least they were tempted to think, that they were the real deal. Like, this is what it's about. This is how you get into right relationship with God. You go to the priest, the priest offers sacrifice, uh, the priest intercedes between you and God. That's how you do it, right? In the Old Testament, they, their, their mindset was, this is it. This is the reality. This is what God has set up for us to interact with him. That's how you have a real relationship with God. But what Hebrews is saying is they're not the real deal. They're only a, a foreshadowing. There's a, they're only an object lesson. There's something that's God given for a little bit of time to show the reality of Jesus being a priest before God. Uh, in fact, I love this. In verse 5, he's really saying that all that Moses was doing when he established the tabernacle was he was following the instructions for a really detailed craft. If you look in verse 5, he says, uh, For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Uh, so this is a quote that comes out of the book of Exodus. Well, context. In, in, in the book of Exodus, the people of, Egypt, in, people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt, and then God brought them out of slavery. Uh, and they got out of slavery, and they get to the mountain, Mount Sinai, and, and God makes a covenant with them. If you were here last week, we talked about that. God makes a covenant. It's like a big marriage ceremony where God says to them, uh, I will be your God, you will be my people. We're going to be in this together. And the people say, yes, absolutely, we're going to follow you. Okay, so right after that, when God makes the covenant with them, Moses goes up on the mountain for about 40 days. And while he's up there, God gives him all these detailed instructions. Seven chapters worth, if you're interested, to go back into Exodus and read Exodus 25 and the next seven chapters. And God's laying out for him, like, here's the, the color of the, of the stuff you're supposed to use. Here's how many hooks you're supposed to make. Here's how you make the hooks. Here's how you, you know, the material you're supposed to use to, to make this part. And he's just laying out in extreme detail how to do this project. Now, I know sometimes in children's church, yeah, we do make complicated crafts. Right? I mean, sometimes they come back and I'm like, whoa, that was impressive. Uh, but this, this, is, this is beyond that. This is like way harder than trying to assemble something from Ikea. Okay? This is like, this is, this is detailed, detailed instructions on, on how to make this tent. And so all Moses is doing when he comes back and he says, here's how to make the tabernacle. He's just following God's plans, just following his instructions as God says, here's the object lesson that I want you to make. All right, so let's look at these objects. What are the things that God wanted Moses to make? Uh, the first one shows up in chapter 9, and it's the tabernacle. Okay, object number one is the tabernacle. If you look in chapter 9, first five verses describe it. It says in verse 2, a tent was prepared. The first section, in which were a lampstand, a table, the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. And it's got the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant. And above that, it says in verse 5, where the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Uh, so the tabernacle is this really fancy tent. You can read about all the, all the uh, instructions and then how they built it at the end of Exodus. 
Super fancy tent. Uh, the main thing you gotta understand though is the structure of it. It's shaped like a rectangle. And it's divided into two parts, not evenly. The first part is two-thirds of the tent and the back part is a third of the tent. So in the, in the first two-thirds of the tent, it's called the most holy, or it's called the holy place. And the holy place has, has, uh, has some stuff in it. It says it's got the, the table, the lampstand, the bread of the presence. This is stuff that the, uh, that the priests use in their normal priestly duties. Uh, but then there's a, a veil. There's a, a curtain between that and the most holy place. In the most holy place, you've got uh, an altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of it, this thing is called a mercy seat. You've got two cherubim, two angels with their wings outstretched facing each other. And on top of that mercy seat is the place where, when the tabernacle was in use, it's the place where God dwelt specially on earth. Now, now, now verse 5 says, uh, of these things we cannot now speak in detail, and we're not going to do that. We're not going to talk in detail about those things. Uh, if you want to read about them, feel free. Uh, but the most important thing, the object that we need to recognize is that it's shaped in this way with a rectangle, two parts, a holy place, and a most holy place. The second object, as you keep on reading, is not really a thing that you could touch, but it's a custom. It's a, a practice that was done. It's their sacrificial system. Um, especially, it's, it's what's known as the Day of Atonement ritual. Uh, now, this one comes to us from Leviticus 16. So, again, if you want to read that, uh, mark that down, check it out. There's not much detail in our passage about it, uh, so let me fill in a little background. Uh, once a year, there was a custom that the people all got together and, and they dealt with their sin. Okay, the way this was done is that the high priest would, first of all, uh, get to go into the most holy place to make a sacrifice uh, for the sins of the people. Uh, but before the high priest could go in for himself, he had to kill a bull. He had to kill a bull for his own sins and for the sins of his family. Okay, then he would take the blood of the bull, in a, little, in a bowl, it was probably a big bowl, and he'd carry it in uh, to the most holy place. He'd go behind the veil, and he'd sprinkle some of the blood of the bull on top of the, altar, uh, on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, then he'd go back out. He'd kill a goat. The goat was for the sins of the people. He'd take the blood of the goat and he'd go walk in behind the veil into the most holy place. He'd sprinkle the blood of the goat on the, uh, the top of the Ark of the Covenant and then he'd go out. And then after that, they'd bring another goat and he would put his hands on top of the goat's head. And he would confess on top of the goat's head all the sins of the people. Okay? And the sins of the people would be transferred onto the goat and then the goat would go outside the camp and it would die and it would take the sins of the people away from the camp. So this is what's going on when the author talks about in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 9. He says, The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second one, the high priest goes, and he but once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. It's a second object lesson that God set up. That every year, over and over again, the priest can enter the presence of God one time. And only then, after killing a bull and a goat. And when he comes before God, he takes that blood and he puts it on the Ark of the Covenant to atone for the sins of the people. Okay. But he has to do it every year. That's part of the object lesson. It's not just one time, it's every year, again and again and again. Last year's bull, last year's goat, all they were good for last year, they don't cut it for this year. Okay, so those are the objects. Those are the things, those are the, those are the crafts that God says, do these things. Make a tent with two parts, one that nobody can go in. Except for they, if they kill a goat and a bull, once a year they can go back there. 
Right. Why did he do this? You know, sometimes I think that the reason that we make crafts for kids is because we just want them to get out of our hair. Is that why God created these objects? Let's, let's just keep the people busy. I'll make them build this big tent. It'll take them a long time. It, it'll be really involved, and then I, they won't bother me for a while. Or I'll, I'll just have them do this, this ceremony year after year. You know, it'll, it'll keep them busy, give them something to do every year. They've got to build up to it. You know, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a fun thing, just a nice tradition. Now, God did these things for a purpose. He created these objects to teach specific lessons. And the first lesson that he was teaching was that humans just can't enter God's presence. Okay? Humans can't enter God's presence. So you just put yourself in their shoes. You're living this life. You, you experience this tent. Okay? There's a place where God lives in your midst. But it's in a, in a tent. And now, first of all, the tent, I didn't mention, has a courtyard around it. So if you even want to get close to the tent, first you've got to come in the courtyard. And then once you get in the courtyard, like you're just Joe Schmo Israelite. Uh, you're, you're just there. You, you would love to get in God's presence, but you can't because you're not a priest. There's a tent where God is, but only the priests can go in there. And they can, they can go into the first section to do their normal stuff, but then there's the second section where God really is. And if you want to get in there, well, you've got to be the high priest. And the high priest can't go in whenever he feels like it. He can just go in there once, and before he goes in there, he's got to kill a bunch of livestock. Okay, so, so it's not, it's not easy-peasy. You can't just walk right into the presence of God. In fact, the message that's shouted from this object lesson, is that you cannot get to God. In fact, that's what it's saying in in verse 8. He says, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open, as long as the first section is standing. He's saying, as long as we've got this object lesson, as long as that's the way God is communicating his presence to the people, you can't get to God. You just can't do it. Okay, the second lesson that's communicated is that the blood of animals can't purify people completely. You just keep reading in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 9. It says, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipers. They they can't do it. We only talked about the Day of Atonement, where once a year they had to do a sacrifice, but, but did you know there were daily sacrifices too. Every morning, every evening, they're sacrificing animals. And then on top of that, there's the other sacrifices that people would just bring because of different stuff going on in their lives, different festivals. And so constantly, part of this object lesson is, is you're, you're smelling barbecue, right? As these burnt sacrifices are going up, people are killing animals all the time, burning them on the altar. So you're smelling this. You're hearing the, the, the cows make their death noises. You know, you're, you're seeing the blood. You're, you're smelling the stuff all the time. You're hearing and seeing constantly animals are dying. When is it enough? Like, we, we did it this morning. We, we, we killed him last night. Uh, we, we just had the Day of Atonement last year. Why do we have to keep doing this? Why do we have to keep killing these animals? It's because the blood of animals is not sufficient to purify for your sins. That's the whole point of this message. That's why you had to keep doing it over and over and over again because the purification they could provide was only temporary. It was only outward. It wasn't lasting. So we've got these two object lessons that God's made. And they're both kind of downers, aren't they? God's put these two huge object lessons of the, of the tabernacle saying, you can't come to me. And the sacrifice is saying, you're not completely purified. Okay, but both of those object lessons were pointing us to Jesus. And Jesus is the reality to which those object lessons point. And I'm going to show you in two ways, and then we'll be done. See, first, as you keep reading, you see that, that even though we can't enter God's presence... 
And the whole structure of the tabernacle makes it clear that we can't enter God's presence. Jesus has entered God's presence. And he brings us with him. That's what verses 11 and 12 of chapter 9 are saying. He says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that's not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Okay, so, so Jesus is the real high priest. Other guys, just object lesson, just foreshadowing. Jesus, real deal. And Jesus enters into the presence of God. So he's not just going into some, uh, some, some craft, some sort of object lesson, like go through the tabernacle, this is what it's like to come before God. But no, he's going into heaven itself where God really is. And he's bringing not just some bull blood that he's going to sprinkle on the altar for a temporary year-long cleansing. He's bringing his own blood. He's presenting before God for a complete and final cleansing. So Jesus opens the way into God's presence. Now, this is huge for us. It's huge because what this means is that now we can have access to God through Jesus at any time, at any place. Under the old system, it said, in verse 8, as long as the uh, old system is still functioning, is still standing, uh, there's no way into God's presence. Uh, But did you know what happened when Jesus died on the cross? You know, the Gospel of Mark records that on that moment when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the temple, which is structured in the same way as the tabernacle, built off that pattern. It had a holy place and then a giant curtain separating you from the most holy place. Same rules applied, couldn't go in the most holy place, except once a year as a high priest. When Jesus died on the cross, the Gospel of Mark records that the curtain between the holy place and the most holy place was torn in two. Not that somebody went in there and tore it, but that it was miraculously torn. Like in that moment, the fabric of the universe changed. So that Jesus opened in his death the way into the presence of God. And there God gives another object lesson. Look, the curtain is torn. How do you miss this? Access to God is now open. Anybody can go into the presence of God because Jesus has gone into the presence of God. And then, I don't know if you you know about this event, because it's not recorded in the Bible, but about 40 years after the death of Jesus, Rome attacked Jerusalem, and in the the year 70 AD, they destroyed the temple. And it's never been rebuilt since. Why has it not been rebuilt? Because the object lesson is over. Because the whole point of of a tabernacle or temple system where God says, you can't come to me, you can't come to me, it's done. The veil is opened, the temple destroyed, because the object lesson is finished. So this means that for you and for me, we're not having to stand far off anymore. We're going to say, oh God, he's he's a distant figure. He's maybe a benevolent grandfather in the sky. He's somebody who maybe will help me out every once in a while, but I, I can't really know him. I can't have access to him. He's so far away. Now, the wonder of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, God is, we have been brought near to God. We can enter his presence. So, so if, you know, if you're here at church, and you've got some anxiety or some burden, and you, you want to pray to God directly, you can do that. Right? 
But not just in church. This isn't a special building, like here's where God really is. He's not somewhere else. If you're in your home, if you're in your bedroom, and you, and you need to talk to God, you can talk to God, right? You don't have to kill a bull. You don't need to get somebody else to kill a goat for you. You, it, you just come to God because of Jesus. Right? You can be in the bathroom of 7-Eleven, and you can talk to God. And you can be in his presence because Jesus has brought you in his presence. The second wonderful thing that Jesus has done is that he's purified his people completely. Look at verses 12 through 14. He says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats, or goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So, under the old system, you had to kill a bull and a goat just to come to God, and that functioned provisionally, temporarily outwardly to purify you but it didn't do anything to cleanse you inwardly uh, and, and the major evidence of that is that you had to do it next year you had to keep doing it you know if, if the blood of bulls and goats last year really purified me from sin why would I have to offer another sacrifice but, but you did you had to keep offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice because none of them were enough and that makes sense when you really think about what's going on. Okay? Why would killing animals not be enough to purify you internally? Because the whole point of the sacrifice is the principle of substitution. When you sin, and when I sin, the appropriate penalty of that is death. God says, you sinned, you deserve to die. But in his mercy, God provided a substitute. Okay? Now, in this Old Testament system of sacrifice, the substitute was animals. God says, you don't have to die. If you kill animals in your place, then you will not die, right? If you were just to waltz into the most holy place on your own, right, you just, you just kind of walk in, you break through, whatever, Jean-Claude Van Damme, get your way past the guards, and you get, you're into the most holy place, and you, you sneak in there, you die, right? They don't kill you, you just die. Because you enter the presence of God as a sinful, unpurified person. And God says, no, and, and instead of you dying, I want to let you be purified. I'm going to let you substitute an animal. But really, how can an animal be a substitute for a person? It's an animal. You're a person. Now, a bull's pretty big. They have a lot of blood, but they're not an equivalent to a person. Killing a bull, it, it, it's not really a substitute for me. It's just a, it's kind of a placeholder. What we need is a person to be our substitute. But of course, if you think about that, there's problems because, well, how could a, a, just a normal person be a substitute for me? Uh, even the priest was sinful. Even the priest had to kill a bull before he could go before the presence of God. So he needs his own substitute. He can't be my substitute. I need a perfect person. When you think about that, you think, well, okay, if we had a perfect person, he could be the substitute for me. But he's only good for one person. That's a one-to-one. How do you get someone to substitute for everybody? They have to be more than a person. And so what we find as you reflect on the sacrificial system is that there's a need for a perfect person of infinite value to step in as a substitute for sinful people like you and me. 
And that's exactly who Jesus is. Right? He is the perfect person. He is, he's, a, he's a man, he's a person, so he can, he's qualified to be a substitute for you and for me, but he's also God, being of infinite value, so his life is able to count as a substitute for the sins of the whole world. And when he offered himself as our substitute on the cross, it was the final sacrifice. Right? You see, verse 12, he said his sacrifice was once for all. Verse 12, he entered once for all. He secured for us an eternal redemption. He purifies us not just outwardly, but he purifies our conscience. Now, there's, there's millions of implications and applications of that. I just want to focus on one to wrap up. And it's this, that, that this means that for every person who's put their faith in Jesus, we are now completely accepted by God. Completely. So, we all sin. I sin. Okay? Hands raised on that one. We all sin. Even though we're Christians, we still sin. And, and even though we're Christians, we're still tempted to function under something like the old system. We say, I've sinned. So now I need to make some sort of sacrifice so that God will accept me again. Now, I don't, I don't know about you. I don't run to like, okay, now I need to kill a goat so God will accept me again. Or even a chicken, okay? But I think th- there's other things, right? So try this one on for size. Uh, I'll sin, and, and I'll feel bad about it, and I'll think... Okay, if I just continue to feel really bad about this for like the next week, or maybe the next month, like I'll just be really down about this. I'll just beat myself up. How could I have done that? How could I have done that? Then, maybe at the end of that time, after doing that sort of self-imposed penance, then God will accept me back again. Maybe that'll be good enough. I'm the only one? Nobody? Or, you you think, um, you you do something bad, and you you say, well, okay, I've done that before. I'm going to make a promise this time. I promise I'm never going to do that again. And if I keep that promise, God will be pleased with me, and he'll really accept me again, because even though I did something bad, I promised never to do it again. I'm turning over a new leaf. See, now God can accept me. Okay, but the point is, God has already accepted you. The point is, Jesus has already paid for all your sins. The point is, you can't add anything to the finished work of Jesus. I mean, just, just can you imagine God saying something like, yeah, I mean, I know you sinned, and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, it was almost enough. I mean, it got you that far. But, but now, if you could just, like, for a week, just beat yourself up about it. And if you could just feel really bad, you know, for, for a good seven days, then that would be enough. If I could add that to the work of Jesus on the cross, then I can forgive you. Then I can accept you. Then you'll be good enough. Or he says, you know, I, I know you did something wrong, but if you could just promise to never do it again, I mean, I know the death of Jesus on the cross, that counts for a lot, right? That's like 99%. But if you could just promise to never do it again, then I'll accept you. That'll get you the last step of the way. He doesn't say that, right? Because the finished work of Jesus is finished. It's complete. When he died once for all, he died once for all your sins. For your past sins, for your present sins, for your future sins. If you're a Christian... That means that you are completely forgiven, completely accepted by God. This is wonderful news. And, and notice I said it's if you're a Christian. Because right? the death of Jesus uh, doesn't automatically apply to every single person. 
Right? Not get, just because Jesus died on the cross, now everyone automatically goes into God's presence. It's a free gift for everyone. It can be accepted by everyone. But you have to accept it. So when Jesus died on the cross, he, he, he offers to each and every one of us purification from our sins, reconciliation with God. And it's a free gift. So it, it, if you don't have that, if you've never done that, uh, today would be a wonderful day to do it. And if you, I'll, I'll be a little wet after the baptism, but I'm going to change my clothes and I'm going to come out here. And if you want to talk to me, I'd be happy to talk to you about how you can make sure that that's true for you. Okay? But I'm assuming for the majority of us here, it is already true for us. So what does it matter to us? It matters to us. Like, if, if you believe it, if you, um, if you know that this is true, you need to live like it. All right? We need to live like it. Uh, let's stop beating ourselves up. Let's stop adding to the work of Jesus, saying, if I just do this penance, if I just really feel bad about this, if I pile on the guilt and the shame, then God will accept me. God doesn't deal in guilt and shame. He's not concerned about you feeling bad about your sin. He wants to forgive your sin. He wants to transform you and give you a new life. So my hope for us, and especially as we move on to to enacting this symbol of what God has done uh, in baptism, my hope is that we're reminded of the truth of the gospel. That, that joy will fill our hearts. We're free. We're free. No more bulls and goats. No more veils between us and God. And that that joy would well up inside of us, become a fountain of living water, spilling over into interactions with everyone else, and bringing joy to, uh, to our lives and the lives of others. So that's my prayer for us today. I'm going to pray for us now. Then we'll intro the, uh, the time of baptism and move on to that. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for these object lessons. We are, uh, you know, we're, we're wonderful creatures. We're grateful the way you've made us. It's not enough for us oftentimes just to hear something, but to see it, to live it, um, to experience it really, really helps us to grasp that. So, Father, thank you for the message of those Old Testament object lessons that made it clear to us that on our own we cannot come to you and we cannot take care of our own sin. Thank you, too, for the object lessons that we see in the New Testament of things like baptism and the Lord's Supper that remind us that Jesus has made a way. Oh, Lord, if there's anyone here who has not accepted you, I pray that you'd be working their hearts right now to show them their need of you and to show them the salvation that is available through Jesus Christ. And for the rest, Lord, would you give us a fresh experience of love and gratitude at the grace you've shown us. In Jesus' name, amen.